Hi Brickies, I'm Dominic, the last one standing with a kink for cannibalism. And I'm Kate, the resident phobia expert who also hears voices. And you're listening to Shit and Bricks. A podcast where we talk shit about stuff that scares us. Ripping a few laughs and survival tips along the way. As always, please subscribe, rate and review us. And don't forget to follow us on the socials at Shit and Bricks Podcast. Like the morning after a night on the curries and cans, here it comes. So drop your dax, pop a squat and let's get into it. I'm pressing record. No, I'm pressing record. No, I'm pressing record. Don't, I'm feeling very sensitive tonight. <laughs> I'm going to start crying again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hi, Kate. Hi, Dom. Oh, that sounds so sad. I know, but I'm reflecting your energy. So Oh, no. I'm actually cry. so excited. I won't cry, I promise. Um, for those of you who weren't uh, privy to Dominic and my personal conversation prior to recording this, I almost cried in front of my boss today. And he is very much a, a blokey bloke footy boy um, who I don't really ever want to cry in front of. Not for any, like, like, reason. You know, everyone's allowed to feel emotions and do things. But there's just something about the, my working relationship with him that makes me want to have a shield up. And the only shield I have left is the fact that I've not cried in front of him. <laughs> Everything else I've pretty much done. Um, <laughs> but I just won't cry in front I of him. I will not cry. No, I have just, I was just very tired. And when you're very tired and someone says, hey, uh, how are you feeling? Uh, yeah, are you okay? And I was That's like, all it takes. oh, God. Um, but now I'm really excited to be here and to be doing our podcast because Dominic, do you know what? You just make me so happy. Good. I'm glad. And I hope we make you happy at home. Yes. Those listeners. Absolutely. Well, I've got heaps to get through before we get started with our story. Um, Kate's obviously, you know, was trying not to cry at work. I actually have a crying story as well. Oh, brilliant. Mine's on, the other, end of the, mine's on the other end of the scale because it I is. got engaged on the Woo! weekend, everyone. Ba-ba-da-ba! <laughs> so excited for you. And if anyone knows me um, personally, you all know that I cry at the drop of a hat. Like yeah, infomercials will make me go. A song will make me go. Seeing an old person on the street. Make oh, me cry. Oh, so, but old people, they're so cute. Yeah, they are. So I'm proud of myself because I didn't like blubbering mess. I couldn't get the actual proposal words out. Oh. But um, I had I had some mist, some mist in the in the corners of my eyes. So anyway, big so news cool. for us. Um, very excited. Definitely, I'm very excited to now be um, a part of that relationship as well. I'm just going to enjoy. I'm just going to join. <laughs> it's great news for us, for you and I. <laughs> Cousin-in-law. So. Yay. So that's one announcement. The other announcement I wanted to remind our listeners of is we have a Patreon now and it is heaps of fun, super exciting, a chance for you to get access to discounts and early access to episodes and bonus content that no one else gets to see and it's only a little donation so please it goes a really long way for us Absolutely. Uh, all you need to look at is uh, shitting bricks podcast and patreon and it'll pop up it's in all of our socials 
um, please, if you are an avid listener, just take the time to go support us. It will mean the world to us. So Yay. Yeah, I would like that. Yeah. We've, <laughs> almost got, we've almost got enough for like a microphone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Keep bringing it home. I mean, we do have microphones now. That's how we're recording. But <laughs> we can get better ones. Absolutely. <laughs> and then my final little housekeeping thing is... Uh, I know that we had gone through all of our BooPod network, Kate, but mm. something has come across the desk. You know, <gasps> oh, my God. Breaking news, breaking news, breaking news. I was contacted by this lovely human being named Kayla, and she is doing a podcast all on her little itty-bitty self. Oh, Kayla. Yeah, she's absolutely, you know, she's just the bee's knees, if that you know, the duck's um, guts, the, duck's the dog's guts. bollocks, all of the animals' appendages. Yeah, and Great. she so sweetly asked if we would feature her in our upcoming episode, and she's going to feature us, which is just great. Oh, I thought you were like, no, we won't. Thanks so much for asking, Kayla. Try again another time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we're such assholes. <laughs> yeah, we are. I mean, yeah, that's how I'm labelled. So she's not officially a part of the BooPod network, but Kate and I love supporting others in, in the network Definitely. of podders and um, pod people, people of the pod. The podders, the, the, pod, the podicles, mm-hmm. the podical sons. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All podical daughters. Oh, um, can I just tell you something, listeners? This is going to be loose, this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, I already, in the back of my mind, am going to ask Dominic to actually edit something out of the beginning of it based on the audience that we have. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. But I have lost my mind from exhaustion. Um, so you just wait. This is going to be loose. <laughs> Sorry, you were talking. <laughs> yes. So Kayla... And her newly released podcast, she's, she's just launched her 10th episode, so congratulations, Kayla. It is called Dark Tales from the Road. Ooh. Yes. And Kayla, she's got such a sweet voice. Um, it's a voice totally made for, you know, podcasting and, and things like that. It's It sucks you in and, and you know... All that jazz. Um, so it's called Dark Tales from the Road. She does everything. Like she will do the crime stuff. She'll do the spooky, the paranormal. She'll do these. She finds these really interesting stories that I hadn't heard of any of them in the first 10 episodes, which is quite impressive for people like Kate and I who. Yeah, we do a lot of research in our downtime. Exactly. So I would recommend everyone, if you've got some time, you're looking for some filler podcasts to, you know, in between our episodes, go check out Dark Tales from the Road. It's on all the usual things. And here is her promo. (gasps) Boop. Boop. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, listeners. My name is Kayla, and I am the creator and host of a new podcast called Dark Tales from the Road. We cover true crime, spooky, creepy, and ghostly stories, and I want to take you state by state and country by country to bring you stories you may not have even heard of before, and also learn some history on the city and the state where it takes place. So join me on the road as we discover dark tales. New episodes are posted every Wednesday. I have an Instagram, Facebook, and a Patreon, all at Dark Tales from the Road. Thank you so much, and I hope everyone has a great day. 
Oh, okay. Welcome Hello, back. Hello, Dominique. Welcome back. <laughs> oh, long time no see. <laughs> okay, so shall we get into today's theme? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> no, yeah, we not, should. Let's not do it. Really it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. All right. So, Kate, when you and I first started this podcast, this uh-huh. was one of those stories that I knew that I was going to do an episode on. It is like the the shit. I have oh to do this story. And okay. I've been saving it and perfecting it and everything. So... Amazing. I'm, you know, I'm really pumped to share it with everybody. And it is going back to uh, the roots of, if you've ever listened to one of our episodes called The Isdal Woman, it's a bit of a mystery story. It's yeah. like, what? I listened to that happened? one. <laughs> you were there. <laughs> I was there. Oh my God. <laughs> Wild. Exactly. And I love a good mystery. I love things that are, you know, based in truth and uh, are convoluted and there's red herrings and there's you know all that sort of stuff and perfect and it, and it it relates back to that fear of mine Kate of dying alone or dying <gasps> unknown you know because I was I, gonna say that like convoluted and lots of red herrings that's definitely my last two relationships so maybe <laughs> that's part of the reason why <laughs> I may die alone which I'm also <laughs> frightened of so <laughs> so yeah bring it. Okay, here we go. It is a big one. It's a big Betty, this one. Big so, juicy. Uh, lots of details. So get your notebooks out. Take your, take the clues as they come. So, Perfect. I'll keep notes for everyone. Episode 38 is called the Tarman Shud Case, or also known as the Mystery of the Summerton Man. Ooh. This is a local story too, Kate, bringing you some Aussie stuff too. Oh my God, okay, I'm ready. Now, on the 1st of December 1948, at 6.30am, the police were contacted after the body of a man was discovered on Summerton Park Beach near Leng Leng, about 11 kilometres or seven miles southwest of Adelaide, South Australia. Mm Mm-hmm. I've been round there. Yep. The man was found lying in the sand across from the crippled children's home, which was on the corner of the Esplanade and Bickford Terrace. He was lying back with his head resting against the seawall with his legs extended and his feet crossed. It was believed the man had died while sleeping. An unlit cigarette was on the right collar of his coat and a search of his pockets revealed an unused second-class rail ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach, a bus ticket from the city that may not have been used, a narrow aluminium comb that had been manufactured in the USA, a half-empty packet of juicy fruit chewing gum. I love juicy fruit. Juicy fruit is elite. Welcome to the podcast, Juicy Fruit. If you have not had Juicy Fruit in your life, please do yourself a favor. You will get a solid flavor hit for 12 to 15 seconds, and then you have to throw it in the bin. But do yourself a flavor. Get some Juicy Fruit. You're either a hubba bubba or a Juicy Fruit person, and yeah. Thanks for sponsoring us, Juicy Fruit. (laughs) Or hubba bubba. And hubba bubba. He also had an army club cigarette packet, which contained seven cigarettes of a different brand to the one that was on his coat. Okay. The brand was Concitas. 
and a quarter full box of Bryant and May matches. And for those that are watching, there is a picture of the Summerton man as he was found on the beach. He looks like he's cruising. Like for those of you listening to this, which makes sense because it's a podcast, um, he literally just looks like he's in a photo shoot. He's full suit, jacket, tie. He's got his shoes on, slacks, like tan slacks. He just looks like he's having a snooze. Mm. And check our socies too. We'll pop the picky up there. Absolutely, we will. Now, witnesses who came forward said that on the evening of the 30th of November, they had seen an individual resembling the dead man lying on his back in the same spot and position near the crippled children's home. Now, when I say, sorry, it's called crippled children's home. When we say crippled, they're obviously referring to people and children with disabilities, physical disabilities. Crippled is obviously not a word that is used any longer, but it's what the home was called so i just i want to clarify that no problems um so these people came forward said that they saw a man in the same spot and position near the crippled children's home where the corpse was later found a couple who saw him at around 7 p.m noted that they saw him extend his right arm to its fullest extent and then drop limply Another couple who saw him from 7.30pm to 8pm, during which time the streetlights had come on, recounted that they did not see him move during the half an hour in which he was in view, although they did have the impression that his position had changed at some point. Okay. Now, although they commented between themselves that it was odd that he was not reacting to the mosquitoes, they had thought it more likely that he was drunk or asleep and thus did not investigate further. Yeah, he does look pretty crazy. Like, he does look like he's having a sleep. That's what it looks like. Like, just laying back on the rocks. Uh, Yeah, full suit. It's a bit, yeah, you'd just think someone's just having a bit of a lie down. You've had too many, one too many shandies at the Mm. RSL. Yep. One too many tinnies. Yeah. Now, one of the witnesses told the police she observed a man looking down at the sleeping man, our Summerton man, from the top of the steps that led to the beach And witnesses said the body was in the same position when the police viewed it. So nothing had changed since that 7.38 p.m. time window. Yep. And then when the police were contacted and, you know, told about what had gone on. Told about what had happened. So uh, I am going to put a photo up on our socials. Kate, so it gives you a bit of an idea of what it looked like, like the setup of it. Okay. But there is a little quick photo, a black and white photo for you to sort of see at the steps. And X marks the spot. Nailed it. Okay. It was some steps, everyone listening. (laughs) Another witness came forward in 1959. So this is, you know, a good however many years. What are we talking? Like, you know, almost over 10 years. Yeah, 11 years. And reported to the police that he and three others had seen a well-dressed man carrying another man on his shoulders along Summerton Park Beach the night before the body was found. Well, there's nothing sus about that. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) And a police report was made by Detective Don O'Doherty. Oh, that's a mouthful. Detective Don 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 O'Doherty. Don O'Doherty. Would they say Doherty? Is it Doherty or Doherty? Oh, it could. It's D-O-H-E-R-T-Y. So there's no G-H. Oh, there's no G-H in there. Okay. Mm. I don't know. I can barely spell my own name. (laughs) (laughs) 
Now, according to the pathologist John Burton Cleland, the man Ooh. was of British appearance and thought to be aged according 40 to 45, and he was in top physical condition. He was 180 centimetres, so 5 feet 11 inches tall, with grey eyes, fair to ginger-coloured hair, slightly grey around the temples, with broad shoulders, a narrow waist, hands and nails that showed no signs of manual labour, big and little toes that met in a wedge shape like those of a dancer or someone who wore boots with pointed toes. Okay, this is very specific. And pronounced high calf muscles consistent with people who regularly wore boots or shoes with high heels or performed ballet. Amazing. So there you go. Heels for calf definition. Mm. He was dressed in a white shirt, a red, white and blue tie, brown trousers, socks and shoes, a brown knitted pullover and fashionable grey and brown double-breasted jacket of reportedly American tailoring. All labels on his clothes had been removed. Have you heard that one before, Kate? No. Our Isdal woman, she too had all of the labels removed from her clothes, remember? Oh, that's why you were talking about the... Oh, okay. Yep, gotcha. Right, Mm. I'm cottoning on. Welcome to the party, Kate's brain. (laughs) You're here. I'm here. Well, Well done. And he had no hat, unusual for 1948. Yeah. And he had no wallet. Is that unusual for 1948 or is that unusual in general? I'd say the not having a hat in a going out of a night mm-hmm. and, and dressed wallet. the way that he was, you know, yeah. so on. But not having but a wallet, wallet still unusual today. Mm. Well, maybe not. Mobile phones. Do you know what? Forget that I have just said words in the past two minutes. It's good to ask these questions because this <laughs> is a doozy. Now he was also clean shaven and carried no identification, which led police to believe he had committed suicide. Maybe. Finally, his dental records were not able to be matched to any known person. We will come back to that. Okay. So what do you do with a mysterious dead body? You do an autopsy. So an autopsy was conducted and the pathologist estimated the time of death was at around 2 a.m. on the 1st of December. Mm -hmm. So this was after people had seen him. That, you know, those couples. Okay, gotcha. That said that they saw it. The heart, his heart was of normal size and normal in every other way. Small vessels not commonly observed in the brain were easily discernible with congestion. Now, there was congestion of the pharynx and the gullet was covered with whitening or superficial layers of mucosa with a patch of ulceration in the middle of it. Ew. The stomach was deeply congested as well. There was congestion in the second half of the duodenum. If you don't know these, I've got a sister who's a nurse, so I, I hear all these words You can words call quite her. Often. We'll post it. We'll tell you her phone number shortly. Just yes. give her a call. It's Hope zero, you're four, yes. four, three. <laughs> there was also blood mixed with the food in his stomach. Ew. Both kidneys were congested and the liver contained a great excess of blood in its vessels. The spleen was strikingly large, about three times normal size. 
There was destruction of the center of the liver, lobules, revealed under the microscope. There was acute gastritis, hemorrhage, extensive congestion of the liver and spleen, and the congestion to the brain. So, What has this homie been eating? Interesting stuff. Or drinking stuff. or doing? Yeah. We will get to it. Okay. Now, the autopsy also, sh- also showed that the man's... Oh, sure, sure. Oh, sure, sure. Oh, sure, sure. The autopsy also showed that the man's last meal was a pasty eaten about three to four hours before death. Oh, my God. Our overseas listeners, pasties, are they a Aussie thing, right? Uh, I think not they're a British, British thing. British thing. Okay. Well, our OVCZ listeners, it's <laughs> pastry with veggies inside of it, usually potato Yeah, and, they, and peas. And carrots like and peas. stuff. Yeah. yeah. There are meat versions as well, but... Think of it like it's a pie, handheld pie, uh, folded over. Yeah, like folded a, in half. It's a calzone. A calzone but a ti- It's a tiny calzone. <laughs> Do you know what? Why don't you just Google pasty? Because <laughs> we are not helping you. <laughs> educate yourself. <laughs> and Google Chico roll while you're at it. So the tests failed to reveal any foreign substance in the body. That's That cannot be accurate. Everything okay. in his body was mucousy and swollen. Kate, we are only up to page three of many pages. So okay. here we go. Do I need to halt my questions? Am I going no, to no, no. here all the rest of the night? It's really good because our listeners are probably asking the same questions. So you That's just so hold true. on to them. Okay. Now, the pathologist, Dr. Dwyer, concluded, I am quite convinced the death could not have been natural. The poison I suggested was a barbiturate or a soluble hypnotic. Although poisoning remained a prime suspicion, the pasty was not believed to be the source. Other than that, the coroner was unable to reach a conclusion as to the man's identity, cause of death, or whether the man seen alive at Somerton Beach on the evening of the 30th of November was the same man, as nobody had seen his face at the time. The body was then embalmed on the 10th of December 1948, so only 10 days after, and the police were unable to get a positive identification. The police said it was this was the first time they knew that such action was even needed. Interesting. They're just, that sounds like a cop-out. They're like, nah, don't worry about it. Lazy. Like, it's fine. Yeah. We'll just, yeah. we're a bit busy, so just forget it. Just file that one as closed. Case closed. Good job. See you, bye. Let's get to some clues, shall we? Please. Discovery of a suitcase. Now, on the 14th of January, so this is, you know, a good month and and a bit. Yeah. Half since. Mm -hmm. Same year, staff at the Adelaide Railway Station. Now, remember, he had tickets in his pocket, didn't Mm. he? But no hat, no wallet. Mm, Train and bus. Staff at the Adelaide Railway Station discovered a brown suitcase with its label removed, which had been checked into the station cloakroom after 11am on the 30th of November, 1948. It was believed that the suitcase was owned by the man found on the beach. Why did they think that? So here we go. In the case were a red check dressing gown, a size 7 red felt pair of slippers, mm-hmm. four pairs of underpants, pyjamas, shaving items, a light brown pair of trousers with sand in the cuffs, an electrician's screwdriver, 
a table knife cut down into a sharp, sharp instrument, a pair of scissors with sharpened points, a small square of zinc thought to have been used as a protective sheath for the knife and scissors, and a stenciling brush as used by third officers on merchant ships for stenciling cargo. That's a really odd list of things. Yeah, what do you make of any of them? Lots of, like, weapony type things. I get prison vibes from the sharpened, like, knife. But then again, I yeah, it's a bit... There's too many weapony things. It's an interesting collection, oh, huh? It is. And four pairs of underpants. So four where pairs. was he... You know, how many days was he going to go? Was he going to wear them inside out, upside down, back to front? Yep. So what? How many days? That's eight days he could have survived. Eight days he could have survived with jocks. Easy. And he had a dressing gown and he had pajamas, but heaps of weapons. I will share a photo. We shall share a photo of the in, you know, the uh, the bits inside the case. Perfect. Contents. That's the word I was looking Contents. for. Contents. I couldn't think of it. I saw mm. you sort of thinking, and I'm like, nah, I can't, I can't help you there. I couldn't Move think along. of the word. Distract. Move along. Now, also in the suitcase was a thread card of Barber brand orange waxed thread of an unusual type, not available in Australia. So something that was obviously international. Mm-hmm. It was the same as that used to repair the lining in a pocket of the trousers the dead man was wearing. So that is how they right. connected the suitcase okay. and our mystery Summerton man. Okay. All identification marks on the clothes had been removed as well. Because mm. that's How... what I thought. They would have been able to make like that connection because the case is not labelled. All his clothes was not labelled. But you were just about to say, however. But, oh, however. <laughs> I'm a butt man, so. <laughs> but however. <laughs> Police did find one item and they found it with the name T. Keen. So T initial Keen, mm-hmm. and it was on a tie. Now Keen was spelt K E A N E. It was on a tie. It was also on a laundry bag, but it was spelt K A E N. Right. It was also on a singlet. Okay. So they did find some items with this keen or keen without an E yeah. on a few on items, it. which right. is, you know, inconsistent with the rest of it, but it was yep. all together. So, you know, what does that all mean? Mm. <clears throat> Police believe that whoever removed the clothing tags either overlooked these items or purposefully left the keen tags on the clothes, knowing that keen was not the dead man's name. With wartime rationing still in force, clothing was difficult to acquire at the time, although it was a very common practice to use name tags. It was also common when buying secondhand clothing to remove the tags of the previous owners. So, you know, we can't read too much into, and we we came across this, Kate, with the Isdar woman. It's very yeah. easy for us in modern day times to go, oh, name tags, no name tags. It's so easy for us to jump to conclusions as suspicious, but it's good for us to remember at the time that name tags was name tags were common and removing tags with names on them was also common. Okay, yeah. So you go to the op shop or something and you grab yourself a new jacket, you take the old person's name off it and you just left with that the name on it. Exactly. Gotcha. What was unusual was that there were no spare socks found in the case and no <gasps> correspondence. No socks. No, although the police found pencils and unused letter stationery. 
Okay. I said So would normally I'm taking it then that normally it'd be common in 1948, 1949. They would have like, Hey, come to South Australia. We want to see you. This is from Mary Jane. Come Maybe and visit me on the beach. Right, yeah. gotcha. Love letters yeah. from family or yeah. photos of family. Okay. You know. But yeah. nothing like that. And no nothing. socks. Sus. A search concluded that no T. Keen was missing in any English-speaking country. Um, so a nationwide circulation of the dry-cleaning marks also proved fruitless. All that could be garnered from the suitcase was that the front gusset and feather stitching on a coat found in the case indicated it had been manufactured in the United States. But, you know, that only explains and says so much. Yeah, exactly. The coat had not been imported, indicating the man had been able, had been to the United States or brought brought the coat from bought the coat from somewhere of similar size. Mm-hmm. Who had been? All right. So police checked incoming train records and believed the man had arrived at the Adelaide railway station by overnight train from either Melbourne, Sydney, or Port Augusta. They were the only trains coming in. Yep. They speculated he had showered and shaved at the adjacent city baths. There were no, there was no bath ticket on his body, but mm-hmm. it's it's close by, and he was cleanly shaved. Remember when they found him? Yep. Before returning to the train station to purchase a ticket for the ten fifty a.m. a.m. train to Henley Beach, which was found on his body. Yep. He had missed, and he obviously had missed it or d- decided not to catch it. He immediately checked his suitcase at the t- station cloakroom before leaving the station and catching a city bus to Glenlang. Glenlang. It's a hard word to say. It is, yeah. Although named City Bus, the centre was not a public bathing facility, but rather a public swimming pool. The railway station ba- bathing facilities were adjacent to the station cloakroom, which itself was adjacent to the sta- station's southern exit onto North Terrace. So very strange that he didn't use... The bathing options right there at the station. He'd actually left and gone somewhere else. And gone somewhere else. Yeah, that's right. Who knows? Maybe they were poor quality. (laughs) Maybe they were dirty. Yes. The city baths on King William Street were accessed from the station's northern exit via a laneway. There is no record of the station's bathroom facilities being unavailable on the day he arrived. Interesting. So he could have gone there if he wanted to. Absolutely. Inquest. So, an inquest into the man's death conducted by Coroner Thomas Erskine Cleland commenced a few days following the discovery of the body, but was adjourned until the 17th of June, so six months later, yeah. in 1949. Cleland, as the investigating pathologist, re-examined the body and made a number of discoveries. He noted that the man's shoes were remarkably clean and appeared to have been recently polished, rather than in the condition expected of a man who had apparently been wandering around Lang Lang all day. Yeah. He added that this evidence fit in with the theory that the body may have been brought to Somerton Park Beach after the man's death, accounting for the lack of evidence of vomiting and convulsions, which are two main physiological reactions to poison. Yeah, and also like there was that links in with the report of a person seeing another person carrying a person on their shoulders down to the beach. Exactly. You wouldn't get sand on your shoes if someone threw you over their shoulder. Yep. 
Now, Cleland speculated that as one of the witnesses could positively identify the man they saw the previous night as the same person discovered the next morning, there remained the possibility the man had died somewhere else and had been dumped. Mm -hmm. He stressed that this was purely speculation as all the witnesses believed it was definitely the same person as the body was in the same place and lying in the same distinctive position. He also yeah. found no evidence indicating the identity of the deceased. All right. Cendric Staten Hicks was a professor of physiology and pharmacology at the University of Adelaide. I love all of their names. They are so good. So, Everybody has like the hyphenated names. I want to I want to get on that bandwagon. Mm, it just sounds rich and distinguished. It does. He testified that of a group of drugs, variants of a drug in that group he called number one, and in particular number two, were extremely toxic in a relatively small oral dose that would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to identify, even if it had been suspected in the first instance. It's So when they say number one and number two, there was reason for these code words to be used instead of what they actually were. So we will come back to this. Ooh, okay, not do wheeze and poos. We're not talking about wheeze no, and poos. Okay, we're not. just checking. Which we we tend to do in this podcast. We really do, yeah. I have to bring it back. I gotta reference it at some point. It's shit Absolutely. and bricks. Yep. He gave Cleland, so the person in the inquest. Cleland Yep. Hicks gave Cleland a piece of paper with the names of the two drugs, which was entered as Exhibit C18. The names were not released to the public until the 1980s, as at the time they were quite easily procurable by the ordinary individual. You could get it from a chemist without the need to give a reason for the purchase. So for public safety, they decided not to disclose what these two very accessible things are that could be lethally toxic. <laughs> Used as poison because you've got some disgruntled housewives that would be popping off to the pharmacy to fill the script the next day and see you later, Barry and Stephen. <laughs> popping down the beach. That annoying dog that your neighbour has. You just Oh, yeah, good point. Right. Sorry, I went straight for husbands. Whoops. Mm. Now, the drugs were later publicly identified as digitalis and... Oibane, both cardinal... Oy vein? <laughs> Oy vein. <laughs> Oy vein. I just had a nanny fine just flashed into my mind. Oy vein. <laughs> now, they are both cardinalide type cardiac glycosides. Yeah, so that if you've means. got high blood pressure or heart problems, you will take this. Digitalis especially. Yeah. I don't have heart problems. I just know that from watching movies. Yeah. Now, Hicks noted the only fact not fi not found in relation to the body was evidence of vomiting. Hmm. We discussed this earlier. He then stated its absence was not unknown, but that he could not make a frank conclusion without it. Hicks stated that if death had occurred seven hours after the man was last seen to move, it would imply a massive dose that could still have been undetectable. It was noted that the movement seen by the witness at 7pm could have been the last convulsion proceeding to death. Oh, Early the death rattle. I know, the death shake. The death, the death wobbles. Ooh. <laughs> now, early the in the... drop. Oh, I like that. I'm sorry. I keep interrupting you. I'm so sorry. Interrupt away. I love it. Okay. Early in the inquiry, Cleland stated, I would be prepared to find that he died from poison 
that the poison was probably a glucoside and that it was not accidentally administered, but I cannot say whether it was administered by the deceased himself or by some other person. Obviously, that's hard to necessarily prove. Despite these findings, he could not determine the cause of death of the unidentified man. So, you know, obviously... There's things that are most probable, but you've, you know, you can't in a court of law just say this 100% is true unless you can't be certain. Yeah, that's right. He's like, I'm 95% sure, but he didn't spew, so I can't be 100%. Yeah. Cleland remarked that if the body had been carried to its final resting place, then all the difficulties would disappear. So he could have vomited somewhere else. Yeah. After the inquest, a plaster cast was made of the man's head and shoulders The lack of success in determining the identity and cause of death of the man had led authorities to call it an unparalleled mystery and believe that the cause of death might never be known. Oh, that's scandal. A scandalo. A scandalo. So, Kate, I even have a photo of the bust. Who's bust? (laughs) Because it's kind so of famous and you can even see the bust today of the what? Somerton man. Where does Somerton man live now? He's bust. It's, uh, I think, it, I believe it's in the possession of the police. Oh, fair enough. Mm. That makes sense. Now, we've done the suitcase. We've done yes. some inquests and pathology. Yes. There is another really weird addition to this story. Is it something to do with him not packing socks and four <laughs> pairs of jocks? <laughs> There is a connection to the book called Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Excellent. That's one of my favourites. Exactly. Must read. (laughs) It's a must read. We'll pop it on the list. It's actually our pop culture reference for this week. (laughs) Now, around the same time as the inquest, so, Mm -hmm. you know, 11 years later, a tiny piece of rolled up paper with the words Tamam Shud printed on it, was found in a fob pocket sewn within the dead man's trouser pocket. Stop it. Right. Now, public library officials called in to translate the text, identified it as a phrase meaning ended or finished. Ooh. And it is found on the last page of a poetry book entitled Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Oh, my God. My favorite book. Oh. Now, Omar was a 12th century poet. Mm. So it's a book of poetry, okay? Not like yes. a single novel. It's, yeah. Oh, yeah. I could, I mean, you, you please ask me questions about it because it's obviously, I'm, you know, I'm claiming it's my favourite. So. <laughs> you knew this. <laughs> well, I knew that. <laughs> now, the paper's verso side was blank and police conducted an Australia-wide search to find a copy of the book that had a similarly blank verso. A photograph of the scrap of paper was released to the press. So talk about shot in the dark here, Kate. Oh, I'll tell you what. Here's like a little tear out of a really rare book. You know, I guess that's working in their favour. Yeah. They're like, what are the chances after 11 years we could find this book that has this little missing tear in it and it matches? Oh, my gosh. That is a shot in the dark. Absolutely. Well, here we go. Followed by a public appeal by the police, the copy of Rubaiyat from which the page had been torn was located. That's wild to me. What the actual fuck? Where was it located? Do you know? A man showed police at nineteen an A1941 edition 
of Edward Fitzgerald's 1859 translation of Rubaiyat, published by Whitcomb and Tombs in Christchurch, New Zealand. Um, And they showed it to Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean, who led the initial investigation and often protected the privacy of witnesses in public statements by using pseudonyms. Now, Lean referred to the man who found the book by the pseudonym Ronald Francis, and he has never been officially identified. So the man who handed it in was given the pseudonym Ronald Francis by the lead detective sergeant because of privacy or whatever. Right. Okay. Yep. Now, Francis... Do you think that's like one of those letter scrambles? What do you call those? Anagram? Anagrams. Is that an anagram? Quite possible. Maybe it was just Francis Ronald. Could (laughs) (laughs) And I'm partial to a Francis because my middle name is Francis. It is. It's a beautiful name. Now, this Francis who had handed in the book had not considered that the book might be connected to the case until he had seen an article in the previous day's newspaper. So, you know... Good on the police for following up every lead. Chucking that out there, exactly. Now, there is some uncertainty about the circumstances under which the book was found. One newspaper article refers to the book being found about a week or two before the body was found. Oh. Doesn't make sense. Now, former South Australian police detective Jerry Feltus, who dealt with the matter as a cold case, reports that the book was found just after the man was found on the beach at Somerton. Now, the timing is significant as the man is presumed, based on the suitcase, to have arrived in Adelaide the day before he was found on the beach. If the book was found one or two weeks before, it suggests that the man had visited previously or had been in Adelaide for a longer period of time. Yeah. So the timing of this is really odd. That's right. And I don't wish to just keep harping on it, but he only has four pairs of jocks. (laughs) That's not enough time. And no socks. No socks. That's wild. Now, most accounts state that the book was found in an unlocked car park, a car, sorry, an unlocked car that was parked on Jetty Road in Lang Lang. It was either in the rear floor well or on the back seat. So the book's just chilling there. Yeah. So this okay. Ronald Francis was just having a good old little stroll down Jetty Road in Lang Lang. <laughs> yep. Happened to look in a car. Oh, wild. And saw a book on the floor wall, um, floor well, or on yep. the back seat and nicked it. And took it and then just so happened upon it that it was this book of more than 10 pages, I'm going to say. Mm. So uh, the I mean, wind- it is my favourite. Yeah. So the window of the, of the car was, I was rolled open. down. Perfect. Yeah. Go ahead and take my Road to Kota book that's got my puzzles in it. And then you can solve the puzzle by opening it up and seeing a little torn out piece Matched. It doesn't end here, Kate. Oh, what? Now, the theme of Rubaiyat is that one should live life to the Rubaiyat. fullest. Sorry, Rubaiyat, not Rotakota. I was so close. <laughs> <laughs> the theme, uh, well, the theme of the book is one should live life to the fullest and have no regrets when it ends. The poem's subject led police to theorise that the man had committed suicide by poison, although no other evidence corroborates that theory. So it's... No. You know, it's a bit of a loose connection. Yeah. Now, the book was missing the words Taman Shad, which means ending, right? Yeah. On the last page, which had a blank reverse or verso. And microscopic tests indicated that the piece of paper was from the page torn from the book. So it is confirmed that this is the book. Right. 
Also in the back of the book were faint indentations representing five lines of text, all in capital letters. Ooh. The I've got your socks. I'm holding them hostage. <laughs> Come to Jenny Road. Don't bring a hat. Yep. <laughs> Is that what it was? Pretty much. Perfect. How did you know, Kate? Oh, gosh. I've, I've got that copy, actually. I forgot. That's my favourite copy of the book is that exact one. I totally spaced. Call, call me Kate Poirot. <laughs> now, the second line of this text has been struck out, a fact considered significant due to its similarities to the fourth line and the possibility that it represents an error in encryption. Oh. We all know where this is going. It is going straight to the movie, The Imitation Game with Benedictal Cundinjunch. <laughs> That's yeah. a good movie. And a great name. It is. He's got such a good name. Could Everybody knows who I'm talking about. Can you please contact us, Benedictal, and Benedictal? Come and talk to us. We love you. Now, in the book, it is unclear whether the first line of the book, not of the code, but of the book. Mm-hmm. Okay begins with the letter M or the letter W, but is widely believed to be the letter W owing to the distinctive difference when compared to the stricken letter M. So it has quite unique flourishes and things like that. So you could, you know. Yeah, you could mistake it. Yeah, there appears to be a deleted or underlined line of text that reads M-L-I-A-O-I. And although the last M M Yep. L A- L I Yeah. A Yeah. O I. Yeah, what do you Meow. think that means? Um many lengths I am about to outer. About okay. to outer. Okay. <laughs> I'm not a case cracker. I can't help it. We just shared a picture of it, which we will also share with our listeners. Yay. Now, although the last character in this line of text looks like an L, it is actually fairly clear on closer inspection of the image that this formed for a letter I. And the extension of the line used to delete or underline that line of text. So also the other L has a curve to the bottom of part of the character. There is also an X above the last O in the code. So you'll see all of this, folks, in the scrap of paper. We've got a close-up of the code. It's quite hard to describe, but once you see it, it makes a hell of a lot more sense. But it it lends itself, the, the point of all this is it lends itself to be, this isn't just random scribbles, this is... It's got a purpose. Like it's it got can a be, Yeah, it can be interpreted to being that code. Yeah. Now, initially the letters were thought to be words in a foreign language before it was quickly realised that it was actually a code. Code experts were called in at the time to decipher the lines but were unsuccessful. In 1978, following a request from ABC Television's journalist Stuart Littlemore, Department of Defence cryptographers analysed the handwritten text. Now, the cryptographers reported that it would be impossible to provide a satisfactory answer if the text were an encrypted message. Its brevity means that it had insufficient symbols from which a clear meaning could be extracted, which is pretty much code for there's not enough of what's written for them to be able to give a complete. Yeah. Yeah. 
because it's like when you do the little puzzles in the Herald Sun on Saturdays and sometimes it's tricky because you don't get enough of the pictures of the kangaroos and the squirrels and the owls and the X's to figure out the sentences grandma went to the shop. Exactly. So you need extra bits and pieces. Now, an interesting fact though, Kate. Yes. It was semi-concluded or suggested that maybe these were just the scribbles of a mad person. Right, yeah. Which, once again, is totally unfounded and silly. I would like to be that person in every situation when people are trying to figure something out. You could be like, yeah, I hear what you're saying, Jenny, but maybe it was also just someone who was a bit cuckoo, caca, and they just didn't make sense. That would be me. Because I would want to go home. Like, I'm like, I've had enough. Of this case, case, case oh, code cracking. Sorry, yep. I just had a little mini stroke. <laughs> I'm with you, Kate. I'm back on board. <laughs> I'm back on board. The right side of my face is numb. Is that normal? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, yeah, I would have had enough. I would have wanted to go home. All right. So that is the book, Rubaiyat. Now, you thought I was done, but I'm not. Oh, let me inch, Let me introduce you. Is it okay you. that I didn't think you were done? <laughs> yeah. Okay, it's because we've gotten good at it. Yeah, I'm excited. Let me introduce you all to Jessica Thompson. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to the pod. If it wasn't suspicious and, you know, confusing already, folks, I'm about to introduce something really wild to you. Bring it. Now, a telephone number was also found in the back of the book. Now, this telephone number belonged to a nurse named Jessica Ellen Joe Thompson. She was born Jessie Harkness in the city suburb of Marrickville, New South Wales, but she now lived in Mosley Street, Glenglang, about 400 metres north of the location where the body was found. Okay. Nurse Jessica. When she was interviewed by police, Thompson said that she did not know the dead man or why he would have her phone number and choose to visit her suburb on the night of his death. However, she also reported that at some point in late 1948, an unidentified man had attempted to visit her and asked a next-door neighbour about her. Oh, is this is like that we had a podcast about this where a guy just knocked on the door after speaking to a bird on the phone and then ended up living in her walls and dressing like a dead mum. Yeah. So don't trust him. Bit scary. Yeah. Now, in his book on the case, Jerry Feltus stated that when he interviewed Thompson in 2002, he found that she was either being evasive or she just did not wish to talk about it. Wait, and 2002? Yeah, so all these Damn. years later, Feltus, who we mentioned earlier, um, who was doing it as a cold case, yeah, he spoke to this Jessica and wow. found her to be evasive or just did not want to talk about it. Now, Feltus believed Thompson knew the Summerton man's identity. Thompson's daughter, Kate, in a television interview in 2014 with Channel 9's 60 Minutes, also said that she believed her mother knew who the dead man was. Ooh, scandal. So let's rewind. In 1949, Jessica Thompson requested that police not keep a permanent record of her name or release her details to third parties as it would be embarrassing and harmful to her reputation to be linked to such a case. Maybe she was stupid. The police. <laughs> maybe. Poli- she maybe. Was now the police agreed a decision that hamp they so they agreed to keep her details hidden. 
This was a decision that hampered later investigations, obviously. In the news, media, books and other discussions of the case, Thompson was frequently referred to by various pseudonyms, including the nickname Jestin, J-E-S-T-Y-N, as well as names such as Teresa Johnson, Nee Powell, which is an anagram. Oh! Now, Feltus in 2010 claimed he was given permission by Thompson's family to disclose her name and that of her husband, Prosper Thompson. So that's who Jessica was married to. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, the names Feltus used in his book were pseudonyms. Feltus also stated that her family did not know of her connection with the case and he agreed not to disclose her identity or anything that might reveal it. Thompson's real name was considered important because it may be the decryption key for the purported code. Now, when she was shown the plaster cast bust of the dead man by D.S. Lean, the lead detective sergeant, Thompson said that she could not identify the person depicted. True or false, who knows? I love that they just didn't, like, take a picture. They're like, no, we must have a plaster cast bust Mm. immediately. Now, according to Lean, the detective, he described her reaction upon seeing the cast as completely taken aback to the point of giving the appearance that she was about to faint. (gasps) She knows who it is. Now, in an interview many years later, Paul Lawson, the technician who made the cast and was present when Thompson viewed it, noted that after looking at the bust, she immediately looked away and would not look at it again. Now, it's not conclusive, but it is very suspicious. Maybe it was just like a really bad job and she was trying not to insult the artist. True. She's like, oh, serious. Very kind. I don't want to make him upset. Now, Thompson also said that while she was working at Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney during World War II, she had owned a copy of Rubaiyat. Oh, Rubik's Cube. I can't believe she's got a copy of it. Mm-hmm. In 1945, at the Clifton Gardens Hotel in Sydney, she had given it to an Australian Army lieutenant named Alf Boxall, who was serving at the time in the water transport section of the Royal Australian Engineers. So she says she gave it away three years before. Oh, she didn't just pop it in the back of someone's car and wind the window down. Now, Thompson told police that after the war ended, she had moved to Melbourne and married... She said that she had received a letter from Boxall and had replied telling him that she was now married. So clearly there was, you know, something going on. She was stupping him. Stupping. I love a good stupping. <laughs> I want to stop him. Now, subsequent research suggests that her future husband, Prosper Thompson, was in the process of obtaining a divorce from his first wife in 1949 and that he did not marry Jessica until mid-1950 so she lied she's a lawyer there is no evidence that Boxall had any contact with Jessica Thompson after 1945 though so there's no evidence of it right now as a result of their conversation with Thompson police suspected that Boxall the guy that she gave the book to before Mm -hmm. Summerton Man was dead They thought Boxall was the dead man. Oh. However, in July 1949, Boxall was found in Sydney and the final page of his copy of Rubaiyat, reportedly a different edition, was all intact with the words Taman Shud still in place. So it wasn't his copy and it wasn't the copy that Jessica had and had given to Boxall. There's still too many dinkies. 
Mm. There's still too many Kawinki Dinkies. I'm sorry, Dominic. It's We're getting into the detail here, but it's really interesting. Now, Boxall was now working in the maintenance section at the Randwick bus depot where he had worked before the war and was unaware of any link between the dead man and himself. In the front copy of Rubaiyat that was given to Boxall, Jessica Harkness, or Jessica Thompson, mm-hmm. had signed herself Jestin and written out a verse. Ooh, and this is suspicious. the verse. All right, hit me. I want to hear it. Indeed, indeed, repentanced oft before. I swore, but I was sober when I swore. And then, and then came spring, and rose in hand, my threadbare penitence a pieces tore. And on that note, Kate, that is the end of episode one of The Summerton Man. And you are going to have to wait like... We did previously Yay! a whole two weeks because shit gets real. Oh, oh my God. I really enjoyed that. And I really it's... enjoyed that. I want to know what Justin's doing. Jessica Thompson, mm. Nee Hawkins or whatever other names are. Bring it on. That was cool. Thanks, I have Dominic. so much more to share. And what's oh even more exciting uh, today, the ABC He's... actually oh. released an update on the case. So there is an article out there. Don't look at it, Kate. Oh, I can't read, so that's okay. (laughs) But (laughs) what's really exciting about this story is that it is still active in life today. I've only shared half of it so far, and it is, you know, relevant. There's already... There's updates happening real time. So Happening as we speak. Mm. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that first part of that story for us. You are most welcome, Kate. Well done for sticking it through. and I really and... enjoyed it. I was engaged the whole time. I loved it. Mm. So, yeah. Anyway, next week, Yay! Kate, it's your turn. You get, to do a, you get to do a story. I do get to do a story. And we're going to annoy our listeners by not continuing part two next week. Mm. They'll be like, hey, I want to know what happened to Justin and Jessica Thompson. <laughs> but guess what? what? It's my turn. It's your so turn, Kate. Everybody can just shut up. Yeah. Now, thanks everyone for listening. Please go check out our socials. Yep. Please go check out our Patreon. Yep. Uh, follow us, like us, rate, review us, share, get your friends on board, all that really good stuff. It means the world to us. Uh, yeah. And contact us if you have any, you know, yeah. suggestions or questions or anything. DM us, baby. We love it. Slide into our sweet DMs. Mm. And go check out Dark Tales of the Road by Kayla. Yes. Amazing. All right. Hey, guess what, listeners? We love you. And we'll speak to you soon. See you, bye. Bye. (laughs) That's a wrap. Big shout out to everyone for tuning in to Shit and Bricks. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us. Plus, you can find extra little nuggets on our socials. Next week, we'll be back talking more shit, so do not forget to tune in. And remember to wipe, flush and wash your hands. Goodbye. Goodbye.